Well, hi there. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam, Dustan Aziz. Durur Bashama. This is episode 267 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. I want to start off today's show with an essay of a different kind, and that is with a toast to a living legend who is a cultural nexus for our kind, an icon we should not easily take for granted, an ode to Gugush. I know you're already aware she's a big deal. You think you know all that you need to about her. It's not her birthday or some milestone occasion. So why is this a time to make a Gugush-inspired exhortation? Well, if you've been dwelling in the Iranian social media space of late, you may have seen some griping about one of the most prolific entertainers of our history. A range of critiques have become the norm. Her voice isn't what it used to be. She's too political. She's not political enough. She didn't properly recognize pride. She should have canceled that concert. She should have cried. She should have played that song and on and on and on. Let's face it, when you're arguably the most recognizable Iranian on the planet, other than a despotic supreme leader, you're going to have trouble pleasing all the people all the time, especially if the audience you're asking to agree are disproportionately Iruni. But what if we park all of that and go down a different road? What if we acknowledge this woman who actually deserves the icon label and propose a little ode? What if we recognize that Gugush is a bloodline and a nexus for the Iranian people? She has become our connector through an extraordinary career of over six decades so far, a reminder to ourselves of where we come from and who we are. I had the occasion to see her in concert this weekend. In fact, we have the talented cellist who plays with Gugush Mahsa Qasimi coming up on today's show along with Dr. Ali Reza Hamidian. And maybe this is exactly the time to recognize the import of a legend of our global community. Maybe it's a moment to salute what we have when one of our greatest idols is still active and giving her all. Oh, she may be 73, but we mean something different when we talk about Gugushen seniority. More than a pop singer, more than a movie star, more than a beloved celebrity, she's an avatar. Maybe she is the fuse that brings us unity. You see, she's one of our most direct links to our past. She is a personification of our present, and she's a beacon of solidarity for the future. Watching her concert on Saturday night, it was overwhelming how powerful a gateway she is to a pre-Islamic revolution period, a time of creative fertility, artistic fervor, Iranian glamour, a time of progressive ideas, buoyant pop hits, memorable romantic films, crushingly deep ballads. She's a portal into that past, both figuratively and literally. She was performing for the Pahlavis, being toasted by the country, making a name beyond Iran's borders. She's simultaneously the music our grandparents were listening to, and the woman still performing for us today. But Gugush is not just preserved in time as a nostalgic 70s culture queen. She's also the personification of the harshness and heartbreak that accompanied the coming of the Ayatollahs. She is the incarnation of a dedication to her country as she chose to stay in Iran and depress her career for 21 years whilst in her prime. She is a consistent spine in our changes over time. She is the symbol of the Iranian immigrant who finally left and has been able to build outside of the homeland, but pines to be back and cries tears for those who lack. She's an icon, but also somehow our mother, our daughter, our village elder. The emotional connection that we Iranians feel to her songs 
particularly those from decades ago, move beyond melodies and inspirational lyrics. They exist alongside the weight of a common history and the power of a woman who has resisted and persisted in being true to herself. Other countries and cultures have pop icons, but few that have been the embodiment of the rise and fall of a nation and the struggle to get it back to where it was. There was a moment in her concert when I hugged my mom and we both had tears in our eyes. Can there be anything greater than our Iranian family ties? So while the daily social media diet may include attacks on what she said or didn't say or how she's now singing that historic song that way, we can surely recognize that she is imperfect, but also remember what we have. Gugush is not only someone we've all grown up alongside, she's a source of our commonality, cultural unity, and pride. Here's an ode to Gugush on a random day in June. And here's hoping she's with us when we return to a great Iran very, very soon. Hi there, it is June 8th, 2023. Welcome to episode 267 of Rook. I am Gian. Hello to you from our Rook studio in Toronto. Salam, Dustan. Hope you're doing well. Wherever you are tuning in from around the world, we are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Hi, Savvy Roham behind the soundboard. Hello, sir. And hello, Smart Pega here in the studio. Hello. You know, your essay, I mean, I was already upset that I missed the Goosh concert, and your essay just took me right back to that place again. I thought I'd gotten over it over the last week, and yet, you know. You know what? You said you've seen her a few times, right? I have. And remember last week I was saying it was the first time I've seen her live. Yeah, I couldn't believe that. And, you know, it was it was really great. She's amazing. It was really great. I know people nitpick. Mm-hmm. I know there's some things she could have said on stage she didn't say. There's a couple of notes she didn't hit, maybe. Mm-hmm. That was the point of my, I mean, she is, she is really, for me, this concert was, uh, it was kind of next level from, um, forgive me, but from a lot of the Iranian performers yeah. we see. I mean, it, 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 the, the quality of the band, mm-hmm. the quality of the performance, the production, um, you know, and she owns it. She says, I'm 73. Yeah, of you know? course. She doesn't even, she's not making any qualms about it. There's a part in the show, actually, where she says, you know, I sang for your great grandparents and your grandparents and your parents and probably your children. <laughs> and I'll still be here, when you're, you know, and she is this through line, you know, so it's this true. amazing through line. And, and, you know, during the show, I don't know if you've experienced this before, but when I talk about how she is this link to our past, mm-hmm. I mean, you see these, they, they have a video screen behind her. So they're playing, you know, clips of clips, movies yeah. with, uh, Ben or, or mm-hmm. whatever. And her, and so it's this feeling of of an Iranian past that is of a different mm-hmm. era, especially given what's happened in the last 45 years and given what's happened in the last nine months. There's so much ero- emotion mm-hmm. around that. There was a few times that in between songs, the crowd spontaneously erupted in uh, Zan Zadigi Azadi wow. or Magbad, what, you know, whatever. And and uh and there was a there was there was a few times. <laughs> I mean, somebody would appear on the screen, you mm-hmm. know, like Chaponu or something, and the crowd would just be like, ah, you know, <laughs> it was it was like a a cultural experience. Yeah. At the same time as a gig that you hear your favorite songs, you know, it's uh, um, and she's so she's such a professional. She's, yeah. she's just in control, right? She's in control. Well, what you were saying about you know her being this kind of um, cultural kind of 
connector amongst all of us and this icon and, and all of that it actually takes me back to one of the first concerts of hers that I went to so I grew up obviously watching the movies and listening to the music and hearing my grandmother and my mom and family members and everyone talking about her but I actually remember the even first though you're too young to have been alive in the the glamour area era of, of yeah Kubush, right? I mean yeah during you're her, born after the revolution yes, yeah, I yeah. was yeah um, and so I remember going to her first concert and seeing those same videos on the on the screen and, and seeing her and listening to the songs that I had listened to with family and and feeling that connection yeah. and it's so strange because you know I speak to all my friends about it and and they all feel the same way and the same the same feeling carries amongst Iranian friends who have lived in Iran and even those who have never lived in Iran and have never even traveled yeah. to Iran but they grew up listening to the music it's so much part of the emotion uh, because everybody knows her story too yeah. everybody knows about the two decades where she couldn't mm-hmm. sing when she's in her prime you know uh, and everybody and at the same time it's it is forgive me again but it is kind of it does feel i mean social media is what it is but it yeah. does feel iranian as well to be <laughs> like the little attacks on Critical. her and, yeah and even at the concert i didn't even want to talk about it but there was some guys who were like right in the front like in the first or second row who got up in the middle of like a one of her ballads and like then came back with drinks and we're just talking and high-fiving and it was like it was you just can't imagine that at a uh, you know sometimes at a maybe a non-iranian event it's yeah. like what, what this is an icon like can you imagine leonard cohen somebody in the second row being like let's go get some tequila in the middle of his ballad you know um, but Horrible. anyway, anyway, Qasemi, uh, mm-hmm. who um, is a fabulous cellist, and and one of the things that's great about her is she's this multi-genre performer. She she um, she's trained classically mm-hmm. in Iran, in Armenia, in Canada, and in the United States. Uh, but she also plays in fusion bands, rock mm-hmm. bands, pop music. So she's been on tour with Gugush. Wow. She's coming into the studio today and, and she's going to perform here in the studio with her electric cello. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is a, a barik version, a kamar barik <laughs> version, a skin, thin version of the, of the cello. Easier to carry around, yeah. I guess. Because Roham was like, uh, how we are going to fit the cello, you know? And I was like, uh, wow, <laughs> wait till you see this sleek electric cheating Fancy. cello. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but before her, Dr. Ali Reza Hamidian will be joining us from Philadelphia. Now, his specialty is in plastic and reconstructive surgery, LGBTQ-centered health, and trans non-binary health. Uh, he does a lot of surgeries and transition surgeries. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was one of the doctors, um, much like Dr. K and a couple of the other people we've had on the show recently, who has been remotely helping people inside Iran mm-hmm. online. You know, in fact, I don't think he was even even in social media before, like, or on social media. He didn't even <laughs> have accounts before September. Wow. And he's been very active in terms of helping uh, injured protesters, mm-hmm. et cetera, from afar. And he's got a very interesting perspective given his specialty in right. trans and LGBTQ community issues. So um, he'll be joining us from Philadelphia coming up in just a little bit. And there is a festival remembering uh, little Kion Pierre Falac mm-hmm. uh, this weekend. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that because yes. uh, it would have been his 10th birthday. It would. This, so sad. Uh, I mean, I, I see the pictures. All of the greats have their birthdays this weekend. <laughs> yes, they do. And, and they all rhyme with Gion and Kion. <laughs> yeah. Lots of birthdays. Uh, that's all coming up on this edition of Rook. Let me tell you about something you should know. 
Inside. This episode of Rook is brought to you with the support of Blinds Factory. You like blinds? Well, if you like blinds better than tired old curtains, blinds are where it's at. And your stop is Blinds Factory, made in Canada with an Iranian connection, inventive designs, options that have been carefully considered, trend advisors that curate collections, Blinds Factory guarantees that you'll find the perfect blind shade or drapery to match your style and needs they hand create Mm -hmm. in canada blinds for you you have a certain window that you want your blinds to fit in Mm -hmm. Pega. yes (laughs) you better you know we've been doing this each week i expect you to buy some blinds from blinds i know i've sold this to you each week yeah gotta Uh, think about replacing those window dressings of mine that's right (laughs) get rid of those tired old early 2000s drapes (laughs) each treatment is crafted to the exact dimensions of your windows then professionally installed for a perfect fit best of all they are passionate about details and that shows in everything they do find blinds factory at blindsfactory.ca you don't have to be in toronto by the way you can do this from wherever you are blindsfactory.ca or find them on instagram at blindsfactoryca blindsfactoryca All right, let's get to the Rook Roundup before we get to Dr. Ali Reza Hamidian and Masa Qasemi here live in the Rook studio. You know, there is this festival uh, that is happening on Saturday. It's happening in in a number of cities around the world. Mm -hmm. It's been organized quite quickly and impressively, uh, celebrating the life of Keon Pierre Falak on what would have been his 10th birthday. One of the organizers of this or the people who's been uh, behind promoting it and trying to get the details down is our friend, the um, the artist and activist, Nagmeh Jha, and she's going to join us from somewhere in Toronto right now. Hello, Nagmeh, are you there? Yes. Hello, Gian, I'm here. Hi, hi, hi. Thank you for joining us to tell us a little bit about this uh, uh, Kion's Festival. I know you're in the, in the middle of um, preparations. First and foremost, how did this idea come about, uh, doing something in the memory and honor of Kian Pierre Falak? Actually, Kian Festival is a teamwork by independent Iranian activists abroad that we started idea and soon the idea became very big and huge and lots of city start joining us all around the world. So I guess it's become a huge festival. Can you say where the idea originally came from? You know what? We know that uh, security forces in Iran, they even uh, forbid the family of victims to arrange a birthday on the graveyard for their loved one. And we uh, were um, witnessing that Kian's mom was preparing uh, gifts for celebrating her child's birthday and they just came and collect all the presents and all the decoration they were prepared um, during a month. And we were so uh, upset to hear that. And we decided to celebrate Kian's birthday worldwide to show this family that we are standing by them. I should remind people, if, if there's anyone listening, I imagine they all do know the story, but uh, Kian Pierfalak was one of the people, one of the youngest uh, who have lost their lives in the uprising of the last eight or nine months in, in Iran. Uh, he was caught by bullets from uh, security forces. Um, he was with his family. 
Nagme, what I mean, you you have famously at this point generously, um, passionately uh, created these uh, remarkable paintings that you do of many many of the victims um, of this uh, revolution, this uprising in Iran over the last few months. Uh, so you have some insight into this because you speak to the families inside Iran. What what is it do you think about Keon that is so moving? His story, his his short life that has so inspired so many Iranians around the world. Kian was a happy and curious child who dreamed of becoming a robotic engineer. In a little town of Iran in Ize, he wrote it in one of the school paper that uh, with the answer of the question, who is the happiest person in the world? He said, me and Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. And and that was amazing that a nine-year-old child knows Elon Musk at Ize, a little town of Iran. And uh, he was a very curious child. And um, according to her mom, um, he never accept anything blindly. He was always questioning everything. And uh, this is the hope that in the calendar of our free Iran, this day, the Kian's birthday will be named as Child and Questioning. Hmm. It's interesting seeing the promotions for this this thing on uh, this festival this weekend, because um, obviously there's a lot of sadness around the the victims uh, inside Iran, those who've lost their, lost their lives, those who, who are injured, those who are forever scarred. Uh, this looks like a very, I mean, the, the promotions for it seem very positive um, and and celebratory. Tell me, that's obviously intentional. Uh, tell me about that. Tell me what what the intention was around that. And I know you spoke to some of his family members. They've been involved. Uh, what, what did you want the tone to be this weekend? Actually, uh, I, I want to tell that on June 10th, we unite worldwide to honor the short life of Kian Kirspalak and his, fam- his family and to honor other children who are victims of violence in Iran. This is uh, this is for everyone, every child that it was victim for of violence in Iran and Kian is one of them. And uh, our children in last seven, eight months accompanying us with our anger, with the frustration, with sadness. And I guess this is a great opportunity to bring a smile back to for our children in the name of Kian Pirfalak. Nicely done. And before I let you get back to it, Nakhmajan, what where where can people find out more about this? I know there's festivities in different parts of the world. Uh, I think you said over 40 cities. So how, how do people find out where they can and how they can be involved in Keon's festival? We have a, a Instagram page. All the cities posters are there with the address. And uh, some most of them are Saturday. Some of them are Sunday. We will be festive and happy with lots of activity, scientist activity, dance, music, art. And you know what? Um, this is the message is we are standing by Iranian people. And this revolution is still alive. One day with protest, one day with festival. Doesn't matter what we are doing. The important thing is we are together worldwide. What's the Instagram site? Kian Festival. Uh, the name of Instagram page. Keon I will def- yes, Keon Festival. I will definitely send it to you. 
Thank, thank. Well, you've just sent it to everybody. Uh, everybody yeah. can hear this. It's it's a, such an inspired idea. Did you have anything to, to add, Pega? Do you want to say? No, I mean, I just I I have mixed feelings right now because I'm I'm saddened to remember Keon, but then so happy that you know his he's going to be remembered in this way. And you know, as Nagma was talking about his dreams and knowing Elon Musk, I just you know what a what a young amazing soul to have lost. Yeah, yeah. But I like the idea that we're celebrating it. Yes, I like that. Um, Thank you for this, Nahmeh. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Talk to you soon. And I hope to see everyone in Toronto in the Kians Festival. And and Vancouver (laughs) and... Oslo and uh, you know they're listening everywhere so yes yeah everywhere get Toronto centric at the end of the interview (laughs) we are in Toronto but this is I'm telling you it's a teamwork by all Iranian independent activists abroad right on right on merci 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 Asto that is Nagmeh Jaw the fabulous uh artist uh, who has given so much of herself and her creativity mm-hmm. to the revolution in the last uh, nine months, celebrating the Keon Festival, Keon's Festival uh, this weekend. And um, the sad loss of Keon, uh, we can segue into the loss of another the loss. loss of another at the other end of his life. Uh, if Keon was at the beginning of his life, mm-hmm. um, Hossein Khosro Ali Vaziri. Yes. We lost him in the last couple of days. I, He's one of those people I would kind of think would live forever. I was sort of shocked when it <laughs> came across social media that the Iron Sheik mm-hmm. is gone. I was going to say, we have to mention Iron Sheik. I didn't know his real name, actually, until just recently. So for anyone who, who didn't know what, who were, we were talking about when you mentioned Hossein Khosro Ali Vaziri. Which of the which which of the names would it be, do you think? <laughs> would it, was it Ali or Khosro or, or Hossein? Hossein? Was I, it? I remember Khosro Ali Vaziri. Uh-huh, oh, Khosro, that was his right, name? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a loss. I was uh, going through photos and just kind of reading tweets and, and, and looking all at all of these memories that individuals were sharing. And it's funny because I didn't follow him, you know, at the time of or at the height of his career, I guess, or anything like that, because it was before I was born um, or I was really young. And um, but I do remember that kind of in the early 90s when I watched wrestling here and there I guess mm-hmm. through like cousins watching it or whatever else I remember the one thing that really stood out was I didn't know he was Iranian but then all of a sudden I would see this man appear with um, with the Iranian flag and it was like I remember the very first time I saw it it was just this big shock because never in my wildest dreams would I have thought watching WWF way back when I'd seen Iranian flag. Yeah, we should explain who he is. For yes, I mean, there yes, are people who don't know the Iron Sheik uh, at um, various age spectrums. So, <laughs> so uh, explain who he is. So, um, the Iron Sheik was an Iranian professional wrestler and actor. Um, he appeared in WWE and WWF, which is the World Wrestling Federation and World Wrestling Experience, if I'm not mistaken. Entertainment. Entertainment, that's it. Um, and he was the only Iranian champion within the experience or entertainment and federation that we know of up until now. So mm. never again has there been an well, Iranian I should explain, champion. But for, for my generation or like me and Roam, you know, when I was a kid, this guy was uh, the Iron Sheik. There was some big names mm-hmm. in wrestling, which is entertainment wrestling, right. you know, not uh, Olympic wrestling. But uh, Hulk Hogan. Uh, there's Rick and Nature Boy Flair, and then there was <laughs> Stone Cold Steve Austin. Later. That, that I remember. And uh, Iron Sheik was, but the, Iron Sheik was the bad guy. You know, oh, Iron Sheik okay. was. The, it's all theater, so he would go up there and people would boo, right? 
Like it's interesting that you you had a positive impression of him, right, Rohan? Yeah, because he's he was funny. He was funny. Yeah. O- outside the ring, he was so funny. He he had this uh, chicken sometimes with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was so funny Chicken. sometimes. Like, I mean, yeah, I, like, I, it has to be said, and maybe people will hate me for saying this, maybe, but it has to be said that his character was a heinous stereotype. Like, <laughs> like it's not, it's not like, you know, we celebrate that. Like, he was like the Iranian yeah. the wrestler, the Iron Sheik, who was like cursing, like he was evil, he was a bad person, you mm-hmm. know, all these things like a comical yeah. sort of terrorist, you know, like, oh God. Um, and, and people over the years grew an affection for him and mm-hmm. he sort of became the anti-hero hero, you know, and, and but I mean, the, you know, at the time, especially for people who didn't know a lot of Iranians, this mm-hmm. is not a good thing that we want running around it. <laughs> you know, like this, this the depiction like, of this Iranians. cartoon character of, of, you know, the Iranian bad guy that gets booed and inevitably loses. And then, you know, there'd be like some epic battle that he beats, you know, I don't know, Hulk, yeah. Hulk Hogan, the white guy or something, and people are booing, and oh my God, <laughs> you know, uh, shit is happening because this guy's you know, won. And, but um, but yeah, then he's this character, and it becomes kind of this pop culture figure, mm-hmm, you yeah. know, who appears in all these places and is beloved by different generations and is on everything from late night talk shows to Jerry Springer. And, you know, I mean, he's really, he's really <laughs> become this, he became this icon, you know. I remember yeah. that camera of his in, in the Jerry Springer show going like viral um, sometime again recently like I think it was only in the last couple of years for whatever reason all these videos keep resurfacing and then um, some of the older ones they go viral now and I remember seeing that and thinking oh yeah where where is this guy now and then here well, he was always he was very popular and, mm-hmm. and he was on the Howard Stern show a bunch he was sort of a character there too uh, so anyway rest in peace uh, do we know uh, did he die of Natural causes? Or? I think so. I think uh. it was natural causes. But I have a question since you and Rohan are such big fans. Well, I, <laughs> or, or fans. I, 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 I sort of never really was into the wrestling thing. I mm-hmm. I tried to be, to be, you know, like had a couple of cousins who were like really into it and it seemed like, you know, a thing that a boys thing were to supposed in? to do. But yeah. yeah. But Rohan, I think you were into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Before like high school, it was so big in Iran because satellite was new and the only things we could see was like American stuff and WWF back then was so big. So all the kids around me was into it and we knew all the uh, stars and everything. So, yeah. So maybe Roham, you can answer my question. What is with this jabroni that he would use as a word or something like that? That was like his thing. Yeah, I was just, uh, I think that's his kind of what he what he calls I like couldn't figure it out I couldn't it's not English it's not Farsi like what no, is it jabroni. it's like yeah yeah but jabroni is like a it's kind of a half diss half way of saying comrade it's like Hulk Hogan would say brother you know like okay. uh, yeah uh, and uh, I mean jabroni is not as affectionate <laughs> And I interviewed Hulk Hogan once. Really? And the whole interview is like, yeah, brother, uh, brother, I got to tell you, brother. Oh, and so he like, does talk <laughs> like that. Am I your brother or are you? <laughs> yeah, 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 brother. Uh, anyway, uh, the Iron Sheik, rest in peace. Yes, rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, moving on, oh, I did have something. Okay. Yes, yeah. I did have something else I want to talk about. Well, the roundup is yeah. <laughs> round yeah. not just going to be the iron <laughs> okay. cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll keep it short. Uh, the only other thing I really wanted to mention, um, Nilufar Bayani. Mm. So I know we've talked about her, you know, a couple of times um, over the course of the show, you know, weeks and months and and all that. And for anyone who doesn't know who she is, um, she is a conservation biologist if i'm not mistaken who has been imprisoned um since 2018 uh in iran 
And so most recently, in Evin, yes, exactly. And so, so she most recently published another piece of work from Evin. Um, this was published just a couple of days ago. Uh, the work is called Climate Literacy in the Land of Oil. And so it was actually meant to be a manuscript uh, about climate change and, and the lack thereof, um, the attention that the Islamic Republic is not paying to climate change. But as she wrote this um, from inside Evin, she actually used the opportunity to interview some of the other uh, inmates. Mm. And so under the guise of a study group on climate change, she actually spoke to other prisoners. Um, and really in between this manuscript that's supposed to be on climate change, there's so many deeper messages in it. It's not dangerous for her to put this out there? Absolutely. It's very dangerous. And I think that she's just still in prison, right? She is. She's still in prison. So um, going back, she was actually uh, arrested on charges of espionage while doing research on the Asiatic cheetah, which we talked about a couple yeah, weeks ago yeah. um, or months ago at this point. Yeah. I'm losing Pirouz. track of time. Pirouz, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so back in 2018, she was imprisoned. And then 2019, her sentence was given to her for 10 years. And she's still serving that sentence. Wow. And so where can people read this? So this is, um, it, it's published online and a simple Google search um, will take you to it. Or you can just search the name of the uh, the manuscript. It's called Climate Literacy in the Land of Oil. Very interesting and daring. Um, thank you for that. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox, if you want to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook diet, your descriptions, <laughs> your bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. You can become a Rook member, a supporter of what we do, an active supporter, a member of our inner circle by going to our Patreon page, which you can easily link to from our website. So the website is rookmedia.com. You go there, press the support us button, you go to the Patreon page, and for a few bucks a month, you can either be a bronze, silver, or gold member on our Patreon page. Thank you to Marlene Curry. Yes. Marlene Curry, who has become a bronze member. Somebody often comments on our she posts does, and stuff. Yes. It's always nice to see that she's become a, an official Rook <laughs> member on Patreon. Thank you, Marlene. For everybody else, rookmedia.com. The support us button. Thank you, Pega. Thank you. Thank you, Ahai Roham, Savi Roham. Let me get to our first guest today and our feature guest, an Iranian American surgeon and professor at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, Dr. Ali Reza Hamidian, obtained his medical degree from Shiraz University of Medical Sciences. Then he studied in Oxford, England, subsequently moved to the United States to continue his studies. He completed his residency in general surgery at Louisiana State University and a plastic surgery fellowship at the University of Tennessee, Memphis. He then finished a fellowship in gender affirmation surgery at Rush University in Chicago. Dr. Hemi Dion's specialty is in plastic and reconstructive surgery, LGBTQ-centered health, and trans-slash-non-binary health. Dr. Hemi Dion has been offering medical advice to injured protesters online during the uprising, and he's a great resource to speak about gender affirmation surgery in the current cultural context and in inside Iran and right now Dr. Ali Reza Hamidian joins me from Philadelphia today hello sir hi Jian thank you for the warm welcome uh, it's an honor and privilege for me to be with you today and thank you for having me 
It's a great pleasure to have you on the program. We've been uh, figuring out our schedules over over the last few weeks, and we finally have you on. And I must say, just reading your uh, briefly your resume, I mean, you are definitely an overachiever. <laughs> as an Iranian, <laughs> as a doctor with your multiple degrees and talents, Shiraz, Oxford, Louisiana, Memphis, Chicago, uh, it's like you've been on tour for all these years. Were you the only Persian in Louisiana, or did you find others? There's actually a very nice Persian community in Louisiana, and I was very honored and very happy to be welcomed by the Iranian community. The good thing about Iranians is that wherever they go, they form a small gathering and community. So whenever you go somewhere and you're welcomed by them in their home, you feel like you're back in Iran and you're home. So it was a great feeling to be and work with some of them at LSU. Very nice. Are you saying you found a kababi in Memphis? Kababi in Memphis, it's not uh, kind of uh, <laughs> very much available outside, but they're very good Iranian communities that they're really good experts for making good kebabs. So they normally welcome you in their homes and they make really good kebabs. There's uh, so much I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about your your role in the uprising as a doctor from afar, helping people inside Iran. I definitely want to ask you about gender affirmation surgery and what you teach and what you do in that regard. But I have to start by saying, uh, obviously, I, uh, I see you on Instagram and in social media, and I see you've just returned from Cambodia a country uh, I know very well and love. I talk about it on this program all the time. Uh, I've visited Cambodia many times. Um, if I could ask you, I mean, what did you learn from your time in Cambodia? It was my first time going there with my wife, Samira, and we both enjoyed the trip very much. It was not only a good uh, experience in terms of uh, seeing different sightseeings and nature and everything, I particularly found it very educational for the dictatorship and the suppression that they have uh, gone through and the magnitude of the cruelty of the regime at the time in between 1975 and 76 up until 1979. And I learned that whatever would be the dictatorship and the cruelty of the regime they use for suppression of the individuals no system and no dictatorship would last ever. So uh, eventually the will of the people and the power of their will eventually prevail and the justice will come. And it's very important for the individuals to don't lose hope, stay together and try to work on the same ground in order to get to their freedom. The importance of the free media is also very important. And I was very saddened to know that the world pretty much closed their eyes on the cruelty during the time, wherever what was happening. But nowadays, more and more angles of such cruelty is coming to light. I love that answer so much. I think you're right. I Because I've gone to Cambodia so many times, I've been thinking about it often throughout these last few months with the uprising in Iran. And when we talk about possible futures and Cambodia really is a model. I mean, they're still in that rebuilding process, but a model of a country that is recovering and in some ways thriving after, you know, as you would know, one third of the population was killed in in this genocide in this uh, in the aftermath of the Khmer Rouge and and the evacuation of uh, of the West and all of that and yet the Cambodian people are the most wonderful 
um, proud, sweet uh, people. They don't seem to hold a terrible grudge against even Americans, you know, after the, the role that the United States played in, in sort of allowing what happened to happen and all of that. It really is a model for how things can be rebuilt. Of course, Cambodia has its struggles, um, both with freedom and with the incursion of China now, but it really is a model for how people can come out of it united and retaining their culture, right? Absolutely. And wherever me and my wife travel to, we always try to dig into the culture and understand the people and everything to come with that. We also look at the opportunities for giving back whatever we can in terms of support or help or mission trips uh, in the future for individuals. And I particularly found uh, Cambodia one of the good examples of places that I'm thinking about going back and helping those injured, because there are so many of the individuals that are still carrying sharp nails and other injuries from burn or limb loss or something like that. Yeah. And that comes particularly to my expertise in terms of helping them with reconstruction and trying to help alleviate some of their pains. Well, that's a perfect segue because speaking of helping people from afar and paying it forward or giving back or whatever the expression we want to use, you have gained some prominence in recent months on social media for being a doctor, much like, say, Dr. K, who we've had on the show a couple of times, who has started helping protesters and those injured in Iran through your online platforms, particularly giving medical advice to those injured or unable to get help in clinics or hospitals. Dr. Hamidian, what was the the moment that inspired you to start doing that? Because I notice your social media doesn't even exist before September of last year. So I would imagine part of the impetus for you to even go on social media, right? That's true. That's true. I, I never kind of had any Instagram account prior to that. But I remember it was like a few days after the tragic death of uh, Massa Amini, where we anxiously were following up the news and the media from Iran. And I had quite a few number of uh, messages on uh, Facebook and WhatsApp asking for some medical advice. And what I was uh, finding uh, very kind of saddened was a lot of the individuals that they were injured have tried to use the local resources by physicians or other people in the healthcare in order to get some advice and help for that. And somehow that communication or connection was completely broken. That's where I felt like I have to step up and it feels like it is a responsibility of a healthcare provider like myself to be able to provide support and help to the fellow citizens in Iran. So I started my Instagram page and because I didn't have any expertise in uh, kind of making good educational material and something like that, in the first few weeks, it was mostly doing online uh, kind of communication with the, those injured and try to help them the best I could. And a lot of times uh, you are limited by the resources in a way that you can't uh, communicate well enough in a timely manner with everybody there. But I tried to use as much as experience as I could from other kind of individuals, including K1. And we communicated a few times and he had a presence in social media and specifically Instagram prior to that. 
and he was very generous in telling me that you can possibly use these ways in order to protect the individuals back in Iran too. So I was very much telling the individuals, as soon as you get the advice, you're more than welcome to completely delete the pictures, resources that you have sent me. I also encourage them not to include any faces in the pictures when mm. they send me for the advice. For me, I didn't need to get much of extra information from them. All I needed to know was the age and then what was the mechanism of injury and if there was any underlying medical issues with the patient. How did they find you? I think it was mostly by the word of mouth. When you start uh, helping the first five, ten, then they know others. And a lot of those individuals were going out on demonstrations or were fighting as a group. I never asked how they find me because it was something that I didn't want to get more information from them because uh, it was not necessary. So whoever come, I would try to give them the best advice possible. And sometimes the advice was, you need to go to the medical kind of facilities to get some help. Sad enough, a lot of those individuals were not feeling safe in order to even go yeah. to the medical facility when it was absolutely necessary. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the dynamic of being uh the doctor from afar that people are relying on, especially people who do not have the option, maybe because of safety, et cetera, to go to a, a hospital or a clinic uh, inside Iran. And we know that at the height of the uprising, probably still today, of course, if you are someone who goes to the hospital and you're found out to be one of the protesters, you know, you'll be taken to prison from there. I mean, so this was very fraught. Uh, and the dynamic I want to ask you about is, you know, um, it's one thing for you to give advice. How do you make sure that the prescription you're offering, if you will, is helpful or even is correct when you're at a distance? How do you navigate that path? I think about my local GP here in Toronto, my, my doctor, and oftentimes for convenience sake or whatever, if there's something I want to see my doctor about, we'll have a phone call. And then the doctor will inevitably say if it's something serious enough or if there's something he, he can't properly diagnose, he'll say, well, I can't, I need you to come in for me to take a look at you. You wouldn't have that option with a girl that you're chatting with who's in Tabriz or, or somebody in Zahidan who's seeking your help from afar. What do you do in that scenario? It was very fortunate that I had some experience with mission trips. And quite often when you go to different parts of the world that they are underserved, you have to try to come up with some uh, solutions based on the available options in those countries. And in a lot of uh, situations, you may not have even cleaning solutions or detergents or something like that to help individuals. So I tried to use those skills for helping my fellow Iranian uh, kind of uh, citizens. For example, they were telling that we want to wash the wound, but uh, we don't know if we can get one of them from the pharmacy because they had people uh, that they would follow those individuals that they would go and get anything or supplies of the wound uh, material wow. so came up with even like a post to tell the individuals that you can make a lot of those solutions at home with salt with vinegar with water whatever you have available and this is like a very difficult situation that you have to use whatever is available to help them we were hearing a lot about 
injured young Iranians and the need for medical care throughout the first months of the uprising. Less so now. What have you been hearing lately about what is most needed in Iran from the perspective of a doctor? There are a lot of injured individuals that they never had the chance to go and properly get uh, treated at the center at a time. Even now, they may not feel safe in order to go and get help. There are multiple individuals that they are in constant contact with me that they carry more than 100 pellets in their arms, in their face, in their scalp, in their back. A lot of them has had so many of these pellets inside that they now have presented with lead poisoning. So I had to go and start medications for them when I felt like it's absolutely necessary because there's no way they can go through a surgery to find all the 150 or 200 pellets that it's, because a lot of those were shotgun injuries. So they were randomly shooting at people with like 100 uh, pellets inside each of those shotguns. And imagine uh, you carry 100 of them still inside. Right. That's gonna be very difficult. A lot of individuals have never had the chance to speak up their injuries, even to family and loved ones, because they were scared. And there are so many of the mental issues, uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorders, the people that they were raped or they had sexual assault or any other injuries that they need to be treated the best way possible in an environment that they feel safe the aftermath of these injuries may last a very long period. What about the gas attacks? I mean, I know sometimes these are difficult questions to ask someone because you're not there. Even the people there don't have the information about exactly what's been happening with these toxic gas poisonings of, of students and schoolgirls and, and even university students in Iran. What advice have you been giving those students or those families who have contacted you, who have been affected by the the gas poisonings in recent weeks? I had multiple, multiple uh, either parents or even sometimes youngsters uh, contacting and once advice. What I gather, there may have been different uh, chemicals used for different parts of the country, which I still don't know what they are. I tried to learn about different gas and the kind of presentations and tried to come up with some uh, basic uh, material about, hey, if you feel something uh, like a chemical around or you feel a, an odor which is different, try to escape from the area. Don't stay at the area which is confined and try to reduce the amount of chemical which you're inhaling. We were telling them that even the materials that you carry with yourself, like your bag, could become a possible contaminant and a source for future kind of pollution. We, were, uh, we wrote about, hey, if you're the father or the mother of any kids coming back from school with such an injuries, what you can do to clean the material and the, even their clothes and how to even discard those in a way that it's safe a lot of those were not within the expertise I ever have had in the past, but whenever there is a need, you have to come up with uh, some kind of solutions to help your patients. And I had to read a lot from the online resources and go through, ask some of the colleagues I had about toxicologies and try to help them as much as possible. How do you manage the emotions 
of dealing with people who are, I mean, the idea of school kids being gassed by the 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 government in power in the in the country that uh, is of our ancestry is is quite sickening to be on the front lines of having to deal with those folks can't be easy emotionally i know you're a doctor and you're taught to be uh to deal with this kind of stuff but tell me about navigating that i think the emotions are overwhelming i can't say that as a doctor you're trained to deal with all of these emotions no you cannot and the type of the emotional uh, pressures that you were feeling by talking to them as the first person that they have ever talked to about any of those injuries was really overwhelming. I'm very fortunate that in every step of what I was doing, I had my wife next to me. We work very closely together to try to vent out the emotions and anger that we were getting every single time I was listening to a story of someone telling me about the type of injuries that they have gained. Uh, it's really unheard of the amount of emotions going into all of these things. What surprised me was the lack of reflection of such uh, tragic events happening in Iran in the social media and Western media as much as possible. I know there were some coverage, but it was not proportionately to the amount of cruelty and whatever was happening in Iran. Yeah, it was absolutely yeah. not. It still isn't. I mean, it's you're absolutely right. Speaking of you and your wife, I mean, do you ever worry about your own safety? Uh, you know, there are a lot of people uh, in the diaspora who some people don't even want to come on this show because they're afraid that uh, there'll be a question or some idea that's political and this will somehow put them on some kind of list or imperil them in, in one way or another. When you're a, a higher profile doctor and you're going online and you're doing these kind of things, uh, you know that the regime is not going to be happy about. Do you worry about uh, your own safety? Uh, yes and no. There are occasions that you may have been worried about. But on the other side, I think uh, when you compare your situation with so many others that they were fighting on the streets, my safety was very different from them. And when you look at them and talk to them and uh, everything like that, I think that what I was doing and what I'm still doing is nothing compared to the danger that they were encountering every day in their life. So I kind of have tried to not focus on this aspect and try to be the productive part and try to look at the positive aspects that I can help my fellow Iranian citizens. Okay. Let me segue into your specialty and something that uh, I'm grateful that we have the opportunity to talk about here, which is gender affirmation surgery. This is a field that you've decided to go into. You're now, um, I suppose, an expert in it. Why was this, a, in particular, a field you wanted to go into? I think it started from the first year of my fellowship when I was uh, getting trained to do plastic surgery. And I realized that this group of individuals are really underserved wherever you go. It doesn't matter if it's uh, in Asia, in Europe, or in America. These are indigenous group of individuals that they really need help. In terms of the expertise and the plastic surgery skills required, you have to really excel a lot of expertise in plastic surgery to be able to do face, top, and bottom surgeries for these individuals. 
this was a developing field and it is a challenge and I always uh, welcome such a challenge whenever it's in the favor of patient care. So this was my main motivation to go to get further training in gender affirmation. However, I have to say that there are very limited opportunities in the United States to become fellowship trained for this because with the 50 states of United States, there are only four or five positions available for training each year in the entire state. So I consider myself very fortunate to be one of those and getting formally trained for this. And this has been really a good uh, kind of journey for me. Each individual I operate on, I feel uh, like I'm achieving something for allowing them to experience the life that they deserve and they want to. And this has been very rewarding for me. With apologies to anyone who's listening or watching who this would be obvious for, but what do we mean exactly when we say gender affirmation surgery? Whenever we talk about gender affirmation surgeries, we have to come to the definition of transgender individual. Transgender individual, by definition, is an individual where the gender identity they acknowledge by is different from the sex assigned at birth. So, for example, if my current gender identity is to be a man and I was born as a female, then by definition, I'm a transgender man. So gender affirmation surgeries come when you have a transgender individual and you are trying to physically uh, accommodate the gender identity need of the face, top or bottom parts of the body in a way that they are congruent with their gender identity. Right, and that seems like the decision-making around that is not just medical, but um, psychological and emotional, and um, it's a big deal. These are big questions. Tell me about the, the learning process through that. So as a surgeon who performs the surgeries, uh, I'm not the first person who will be offering help for these individuals in majority of situations. They need to see mental health providers as the first step to make sure that the gender dysphoria is confirmed in those individuals. And then uh, they are offered different types of transitions in terms of social transition, medical transition, or surgical transition. And the mental health provider with the help of the physicians that they help these individuals will make the referral to different fields, including surgeons like myself, whenever they feel like it's the right step for those individuals. When the patient comes to me, they normally have seen a mental health provider. They may have already transitioned in terms of socially or medically with the hormones. And when they come and see me uh, as a part of the team, we fully and comprehensively evaluate those individuals to make sure that this is the right step for them. We go through the steps in terms of the surgical options with the individual to make sure that we have a good understanding of what surgery entails and make sure that we talk about the pros and cons of every step as we want to move forward. Then uh, they will have time to think about it. A lot of times you talk to the family and loved ones at the same time too, because I believe that it's not just the individual who's transitioning, 
a lot of times the family is also transitioning in terms of the dynamic, in terms of the emotions and everything else which comes with. Then we'll make the decision and if that's to do the, with the surgery, we perform the surgery. Um, it wouldn't come as a surprise to you that this is a hot topic these days, even in the country that you're sitting in the, in the United States. And some of it is just silly culture war stuff, it seems to me, or prejudicial. Uh, but oftentimes the debate seems to be around young people or kids and gender affirmation surgery. C can you speak to how you see the validity or not of this debate? I fully understand both sides of the debate. I think a lot of the anger or excitement in a positive way or uh, lack of excitement in a negative way comes from lack of understanding of the true gist of these uh, things. Some uh, parents may be uh, worried about that, hey, if the information is given to the youngsters at the age of 12, 14 or 16, this may by somehow persuade them to become transgender when they are really not transgender, or they may think that the environment may impact some of those individuals to become transgender when they are not. I see it with a lack of understanding completely, because if I'm a parent of an individual who is definitely a transgender, I would rather this individual know about the situation before the anxiety and distress so much overwhelmingly impacts his, her, or their life in a way that they may even sometimes go and commit suicide. So a lot of these information are not supposed to be persuasive as they assume. They're supposed to be information for the individuals to know, hey, you should look inside yourself and then see whether your gender identity is exactly what the society is labeling you as. And those are the gist of a lot of the arguments. In my own practice, where I'm the director of gender affirmation surgery, we don't have individuals below the age of 18 in our comprehensive surgical planning. So our practice is not uh, kind of impacted by whatever the discussions are on social mm. media or media in the United States. All of our patients are at the age that they have the decision-making capability and capacity, and all of them are above the age of 18 whenever they come for our surgeries. I mean, have you ever even had a case where somebody comes to you and, and you think, oh, this person has been coerced into, or I, I don't know, this choice or this decision is not something that is being made uh, based in thoughtful analysis of who they are and what and, and want to be? Absolutely. Uh, as a surgeon, whenever I want to operate on a patient, ethically, morally, I have to be really free of any of these thinkings. So if a patient comes to me, even like has a letter from a mental health provider to say that it's the right candidate, I screen everybody during the time of the visit to make through all of the basics to make sure that this is the right step for these individuals. If I feel I have some doubts, I normally have a mental health provider as part of my team that I would seek uh, his help send the patient to them, say, hey, during the conversations we had, these questions was answered in this way. I want your uh, professional evaluation of this patient in a way that 
this patient would be assessed furtherly by yourself. All of those individuals, along with every individual that we are going to do surgery on, will be discussed in our multidisciplinary discussions. So people from different uh, professional kind of expertise would be commenting for or against doing the surgery for every individual. So it's not like whoever comes and uh, is going to have the surgery. No, absolutely not. But it's a tough decision for you to make, given that the person who is coming obviously wants the surgery, right? I only would do the surgery if I'm 100% comfortable and confident that this is the right step for the patient. If it's not, I may delay the surgery to get more information, to further evaluate. A lot of what we look at is even down to the social support of the person who is going to care after the surgery, what's going to be the mental evaluations like, and so many aspects of the patients. My patients, whenever they come for the gender affirmation side of my practice, I know pretty much every detail of their life in terms of what they do, what's their job requirements, what's the physical requirements for what they do and everything like that. It's a lot more in detail, uh, a lot more detailed compared to my general plastic cosmetic patients. Let me ask you about these, um, your area of expertise and specifically with regards to Iran and what you see and hear and the discourse you have with people inside Iran. You, you are focused a lot on LGBTQ-centered health. What can you tell us about the plight of LGBTQ people inside Iran these days? Well, unfortunately, in Iran, these uh, kind of individuals are still very much underserved and they are indigenous in a way that they're not the focus of any attention in Iran. A lot of those individuals are asked in order to undergo uh, multiple, multiple rudimentary and extra steps for even confirming that they are transgender. For example, in America, to prove that you're a transgender individual, you just see a mental health provider and they make uh, the assessment and then after that it's acceptable. They can write to any court and you can go and formally change your name or title and whatever you want to be in a way that your gender identity dictates. However, in Iran, a lot of centers would not do those steps unless the patient has gone and had surgery done which is very unheard of because we know very well that even in the United States or any other countries that surgeries are available, not every patient who is transgender needs to have surgery. So putting pressure on them that, hey, if you want to be a transgender, then you have to go through a surgery. I think that's a very unsafe and coercing uh, step for every individual. I'm 100% in favor of doing the surgery for those that they want to, but I'm 100% against any unnecessary pressure on the individuals to undergo surgery. It's so messed up and it's so confusing. And again, this is one of those, there's that vortex of people who, Iranians who didn't grow up inside Iran like me and people who grew up inside Iran, at least in the last few decades where the Islamic Republic, where they, they would sort of go, yeah, well, of course, you know. But to me, it's it's so incredibly confusing that, so they're coerced into having gender affirmation surgery because of the latent and the the official homophobia of the culture of the country. Is that is that a basic way of putting it? 
I think that's a good way of looking at it. It's not only that, we have another category of individuals that's also very dilemma, and it's very saddened to think about them. As you may know, homosexual individuals or the gay community are not allowed by law and religion in order to publicly practice or live there. So unfortunately, we do have some individuals that, for example, there's a gay couple that they want to live together. And because under current uh, regulations, there's no way for these individuals to live there together, one of them may uh, be pressured or coerced in order to go and announce to be a transgender individual and even go through the surgeries, which is absolutely not indicated for such indication. And then that would be the only way that they can undercover uh, live together uh, by law in that community. And that's something that I should definitely warn any surgeon or any doctor working in Iran to make sure that they would never ever commit such a crime of doing surgery on such individuals where it's absolutely not indicated. It's so harrowing for the LGBTQ community in Iran. I mean, already a, a community that, that is in danger. We've talked about this a few times on this program. And this stuff that this is, again, Khomeiniism or the Islamic Republic brand of Islam 101, I suppose, but it still doesn't make any sense to me. So it's not, you're, it's not okay to be a lesbian. It's not okay to be queer, but it's okay to be trans? What's the reasoning? I think uh, the story of that comes from one of uh, Khomeini's bodyguards that apparently uh, went and talked to him, that uh, everybody sees me as a man and I'm your guard. And quite often there's a kind of a relationship between, uh, in terms of trust and other types of relationship between the person who is protected and the bodyguard. And they spent quite uh, long hours together because the bodyguard is supposed to protect the immunity of that person. So somehow, apparently, this person goes and talks to Ayatollah because he was the main clergy person uh, at the time. He uh, kind of issued a fatwa to allow such an individuals to be recognized and have a right of uh, being a transgender in the community. That's how in Iran, from kind of early years of revolution, uh, the transgender community was somehow recognized, although it was not in practice easy to transform, as we discussed about different steps on that. It, it is supposed to say that there are some other clergies that after Khomeini has died have issued against this. So it's not like uh, something which is uh, unanimously agreed on by every Islamist and clergy uh, mm. person currently alive in the country. And is the level of medical proficiency in terms of the kind of surgery you would do in Philadelphia, does that exist in Iran? Unfortunately, it does not exist. I can't say for every center because I have uh, only had patients that they had serious issues with the current surgeries that they have uh, undergone in Iran. Because if someone has had a good and successful surgery, I've never heard of that person. However, whenever I have talked to a transgender individual in Iran and they have shared with me about the experience of others, 
it seems like that the majority of the procedures that is currently performed there, they are completely outdated from like 30 or 35 years ago, which was done in Europe or America. This is a fast growing field with a lot of innovations coming almost every day. And you have to make sure that you are keeping yourself updated with the changes and provide such a better service that you can to your individuals. A lot of those individuals, when I look at the pictures of the outcomes, it's not a standard uh, procedure that we consider here a standard, at least in the last 20 years in America. So is that particular to gender affirmation surgery or does that um, generalize? I mean, in other words, for example, Iran is considered this um, one of the main centers for rhinoplasty, right? Like uh, how many Iranians that we know if they want to do a nose job, they go to Iran to do it. Are we to understand that, say, when it comes to rhinoplasty, Iran is as good as anywhere in the world or better, but when it comes to gender affirmation surgery, it's not? I think the problem with Iranian practice is lack of standard let's say talk about rhinoplasty, uh, you come up with a few cases that they look very good and everything looks okay with them. And then you come with a lot of examples of something not being right with that. And I'm just saying that from a vision of a plastic surgeon, Hmm. my eyes are trained to be fully critical about every single step of the surgery when I look at the outcome of the surgery. Unfortunately, there are multiple, multiple examples of surgeries that have been done in Iran, and even the patients may not know their own rights about that. And in particularly, it was better if the person who has decided to do that would have a different approach for the surgery. That's very different from uh, much recent uh, data that I'm gathering from my colleagues and friends that There are unfortunately individuals that they are not even medically trained that they are performing some of the rhinoplasty and other surgeries there. And that's a disaster. Imagine uh, you go and then a mathematician who has not been very successful or having a good income in whatever they're expert in decides to change and then uh, come and do some of the cosmetic procedures, even bedside procedures or even rhinoplasty. And I think this is a crime. This is definitely a crime if it's uh, becoming more and more widespread in Iran. Wow, there is so much. I, we, we've just scratched the surface and I've had you for 45 minutes. I, I really appreciate you and I really appreciate the education and the passion that you bring to this as well. It occurs to me that you've now spent more than half of your life or maybe about half of your life outside of Iran and and you're obviously practicing in, in the United States and you're prominent in the United States in the job that you do would it be a consideration for you to want to return to Iran to practice what you do there I would love to I would love uh, to give back to the society I feel myself to be in depth with the Iran country and uh, people of Iran because I trained all my school years and my medical school in Iran. I still believe that we had a lot of good, good uh, surgeons and physicians in the center I trained at, and I'm in depth with everything I've learned from them. So if there would be an opportunity for me to give back whatever I have gained from there, I would never hesitate even for a second. A lot of what we discussed today about like the standards of practice and everything like that, it's not on every case. We still have very good skilled surgeons practicing in Iran and good uh, conscious doctors that they try to do the best they can. 
even with the suppression and with the problems that they daily encounter. A lot of my classmates are still there and they are very good doctors and I'm sure they do the best they can, even with the difficulty and lack of infrastructures that they currently encounter daily. And I guess as a final question to you, I hope you come back, by the way, because this uh, you're, you're such a great resource. But as a final question for now, what do you worry about or what do you think is the greatest concern when it comes to healthcare or uh, medicine for Iranians? If there was something that keeps you up at night, what is it? What I'm worried about the future of medicine in Iran is... Uh, People coming to medicine for other intentions than just helping patients. Medicine is a dangerous field if you go there for wrong intentions. For example, if you go to medicine just to be rich, I think it's a disaster that will prevail itself sometime in the future. At the time that I was uh, getting trained in medicine in Iran, uh, I can tell you this was very, very exceptional for having people coming to study medicine, not to help uh, other individuals. However, uh, and I agree that every physician, every person that has spent uh, 15 years of their life in order to train in medicine and be able to function there, has to have some basics of life in a way that they don't need to worry about every day's need of financial kind of sustainable living. Yes. However, I think the pressure has mounted too much in a way that I'm worried that there are young generations coming to medicine for other intentions than to help individuals, and that's dangerous. Yeah, that would be a concern. Um... Thank you. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. I hope uh, hope to do it again soon. As I say, merci. Merci as Thank you. Chodafes. Chodafes. Says Rook, episode 267. My next guest has entered the studio. She is an acclaimed and very talented Iranian-American musician who has taken her cello playing skills everywhere from classical orchestras to rock bands to fusion groups. Maso Qasemi is a Los Angeles-based professional cellist who grew up in Iran and attended Tehran Music School before studying in Armenia for a few years, then returning to Iran, then coming to Canada, and finally the United States. She has a resume that includes performing with some of the biggest names in music, including a number of Persian icons. She is currently on tour with a little someone named Gugush. And right now, Masal Qasemi joins me in the Rook studio. Hello. Hi, Jianjun. How are you? We finally got you on the show. Yes, I'm very glad to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you fled from Canada. So, you know, we haven't been able... It's the first time you... One of the first times you've been back to Toronto. Yes. And had the occasion to come to the studio. You are an L.A. woman now. Yes, I am. (laughs) And you like that. I love it. I really, really like it. Why do you like L.A. so much compared to Toronto? First thing about her... Okay. People are nicer. Yeah. People are nicer? <laughs> a lot nicer. Wow. I think weather You just lost a all of your Iranian-Canadian fans. <laughs> I know I did. It's okay. <laughs> but um, 
more uh, on a more serious note, it's uh, music. Musically, I grow a lot in LA, mm. more than I did in Canada. Okay. I, I say it's more traditional here, or maybe I didn't have the chance to meet a lot of cool people here, but I did in LA. So you've met more cool people. Musicians. In LA. <laughs> it keeps getting worse. But <laughs> you know, a lot of Americans like the idea of coming to Canada. You know that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not you. <laughs> no. uh, you're in the middle of a tour with Gugush, yes. and you're with this stellar band. I mean, I know it's been a while that you've been on this tour and you've been working with these guys, but just as a general question, how would you characterize the experience of touring with Gugush right now? It's a journey. It's beautiful. It's really fun. And we have our ups and downs because sometimes when we do a lot of concerts and uh, we go from country to country, it can get tiring. But in general, I think uh, all the, the band members, they are very nice. Everybody gets along. And then it's like a family now. I've been with these people for the past two years now. So they're like my musical family. So really nice. It's not a huge group. It's not an orchestra. I mean, it's maybe it's eight or 10 of you or 11 of you. piece okay. band, but we, we travel with camera and light group. So all of us together, we are about 18, oh, 17, okay. 18 all people right. that we always go together and come back. So you mean it's the kinda, people who are shooting, where you see a big screen behind yes, you and all our that. camera guys, our lighting designer, everybody travels. I mean, it's quite a dynamic show. Like it's mm-hmm. a, it's a real production. What kind of prep do you need to do for this, this kind of a tour? Well, every time before every show, we do three to four rehearsals and we do five hours of... uh, Before every show? Before every show. For Toronto and Uh Vancouver, we did three rehearsals. I see. Okay, yeah. So then we don't have anything else until September that we are going to go to our Europe tour. So we're going to do four rehearsals for the whole Europe tour. This is how we get ready. And then other people take care of other things. So we just do our job and then we know the set list. We know what we are playing. We show up on time. We do our job. We get out. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know the story of how there's only one cellist in the Gugush band. Yes. Uh, in fact, there's only two strings. Yes. It's you and a, a violinist. Yes. Uh, I don't know the story of how you got involved with um, Gugush. What's the story? So I played in some of her tracks years ago when I actually was in Toronto, but I never played live until 2018. And uh, I'm sure you know Hamed Nikpeh, you interviewed yeah. yeah. So he introduced me to Raho Atemadi, and Raho wanted to uh, add a cellist to the band. And she, he told me, Gugush always wanted a cellist. So I was the lucky one, and I did one song with her uh, and as a solo. We just did a trio. Uh, she sang, I was playing cello, and uh, manager Cheshmazar was doing piano. After that, um, pandemic happened. Mm. So, and then they called me, and they said that they're doing a, a recording of a concert for, for Aid. That was in 2020, I think. And then I played with them, and from then on, I've been on board. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, by the way, you're not wearing headphones. This table is very, very sensitive. Oh, okay. So <laughs> stop hitting it, sure. uh, dear uh, sensitive <laughs> cello player. Uh, sure. Um, you. <laughs> uh, so, so that's interesting that there was no cellist before. So much of the arrangements, especially going back to Gugush's mm-hmm. work from the '70s and before, are these lush. Um, string arrangements and there was never a cellist playing? Not in a lot of her songs actually. In Gonjishka she had cello and some of them and then the other ones that you hear the strings they are mostly viola and violin. I see. But then they decided to add a cello. And when you're 
first auditioning or you know, I'm not auditioning, but getting to uh-huh. ask to be in this group, uh-huh. what role does Gugush play? I mean, does she come and meet you and see if there's a vibe between you guys or is it no. just a, no 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 the, they already decided have you ever met like, her have you oh, met her yes, now of course yeah, yeah we, <laughs> does she we, know you yes, yes of course i'm yeah, kidding she, yeah yeah <laughs> no if they make their decision then she doesn't come to meet me in person but i met her at rehearsal and then she came and greeted me and she said welcome to the board excited to have you with us and it's been such a joy to work with her she's such a character smart funny amazing lady what do you what do you mean by character she she's cool she's just very cool she has an amazing sense of humor very quick very witty and she can memorize everything a lot of things she does by memory that i can't remember what i ate last night <laughs> and she remembers I, this is well, how would you describe your rapport with her are you guys uh, uh, buddies is she a maternal figure or what, what what is it like with her um, not bodies, but she she's a role model for me. She's mm. really, the way she sings when she enters the stage, she owns it. She, she really does. It. I mean, I, I started the show today with an ode to Gugush, and I, I have to say, seeing you guys, I mean, spoiler alert, I mean, uh-huh. Iranians all know this, but she really is a professional in terms of the way she owns the stage, as you say. You, you know she knows exactly what she's doing. Everybody in the room uh-huh. is at her behest. Everybody's watching her. Also, that can be a, a tough dynamic. I mean, there's people who, famous icons throughout history who are dictators or who are tough to work with or who are divas. Or uh-huh. uh, It doesn't sound like that's no, the, the no. experience you, you're she's having with very sweet at, at our rehearsal she comes in and then she says which song do you guys want to play is there anything you you need to work on and then she picks the ones that she needs to work on and then she sings it and then we are all in awe that how she does it and then she's like okay i'm good are you guys okay are we done and then she goes now you brought your instrument today I and i was telling rohan before we started i knew that you were going to bring this is what do you call this an electric cello it's an electric cello okay. so it's basically i mean it's not just electric it's a lot um it's like a cello on a diet it's it's a <laughs> it's a very skinny smaller cello right like it's an alien cello <laughs> yeah, i mean you know because rohan we were thinking that we had to set up the studio for you to come in and he thought you were bringing this big cello that, that you know why do you choose to play an electric cello in this band two reasons one is uh it's easier to travel because with the acoustic cello, it's, it's really hard to travel. I need a travel case. Some airlines, even if you buy a ticket for your cello, they don't let you have it by your side. And I had a very bad experience years ago that I had to give my cello to the cargo. And then when I got it, it was in a very bad shape. So that was not an option. And I have two very expensive cellos. I didn't want to do that. Second, in a band like what, uh, Gugush's band, it's really hard to get the sound from an acoustic cello with all those loud instruments like, such as drums, bass, keyboard. Right. So right. we decided, we did. We actually tried a few first um, shows of the uh, tour. We started with an acoustic cello. I did maybe three or four uh, shows with acoustic and then I decided this is not working and then we decided to get an electric cello and from then on it became so much better oh I miss my acoustic because it has the body you hug the instrument it's, mm. I, I don't have a connection with this thing oh you don't I'm starting to he's starting <laughs> to grow on me but I definitely it's an adopted don't have child them. instead yes. of a, your own baby <laughs> 
Uh, and you, you also have your own babies. Uh, but the closest I would come to sort of understanding this dynamic would be, I mean, I play the guitar, so mm-hmm. I have played acoustic and electric guitar. They're very different experiences. Mm-hmm. It's entirely different the way, mm-hmm. you know, you move your hands, the kind of pressure you can use. Uh, yes. Is that the case as well with cello? So like, exactly. you have to almost relearn cello for an electric cello? Yes, I'm, especially with this model. Like Yamaha electric cellos are exactly like acoustic cellos. You don't have to do anything. It's just uh, easier to play. This one is a different creature. Like it felt like I'm learning a new instrument, just like you said. I didn't know how much I'm relying on the body before that. And now that this has nothing, every time I shift to a different position, it was like, well, what I'm doing? Where am I going? But again, after two months of hard practice, maybe three, four hours a day, I think I got it. So. I'm going to ask you, I want to get into your story, um, which is an interesting one. But just before we do that, what's your favorite song to, to play on the, and on, currently on the Gugush Tour? Mm, I have so many favorites, hard to pick. There was a solo you had at one uh, point. Gonjishka. Uh-huh. I really liked that song, of course, not because uh, I play a solo, <laughs> because you're but the star no, of it. <laughs> no, no, I really like that song. Uh, I like Ku, I like Paul. Paul, I think my ultimate favorite is Paul. I mean, is this a moment where I should ask you to play a bit of your favorite part of the before we get into the, your story, or you tell me? You, is it, is it, <laughs> how hard is it to pick that up and play something right now? Um, I can try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's let's hear a bit of what you, you know, we're going to get into classical stuff and we're going to get into, but give me an example of a couple of things you do with uh, with Gugush. You want to hear Gonjishka? Sure. Okay. Gonjishka starts with With you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. Starts like... Fantastic. That's beautiful. Masa Gassami playing uh, her electric cello that she doesn't feel uh, as close to <laughs> in the studio as her acoustic. You want to play anything else from the tour right now before we move uh, on? No. I'm okay. Gonna I'm going to ask you to play more later. Um, we've done so many interviews where uh, somebody says to me, oh, I um, I mean, Bijan Mortazavi was here, for example, not long ago in the studio and he said the first time he heard the violin he fell in love and he knew that he had to mm-hmm. stick with this instrument for the rest of his life and all that in your case from what i understand it was your brother yes. pushing you to play the cello i wanted to it become a pharmacist some... <laughs> so and he said we would not make an a pharmacist let's get serious so <laughs> why did he believe that you didn't have pharmacy skills he was right now i understand that like it's right now when i think about it like, you just can't laugh so you're in Tehran. Your brother was also a musician or isn't a musician, right? He's he, a musician. He's a choir conductor. He conducts Tehran Choir, which he actually founded. And uh, he teaches at universities. He teaches at Tehran Musical School when I, when I learned, which I'm very jealous because back then I always thought I would like to come back and teach here, but that never happened. At what point does he come to you and say, give up the dreams of pharmacy, <laughs> which for some reason you had? He started when I was 10, and by 12, I was in music school. So he, he knew I have two years of dreaming that, no, this is not what I want to do. But then, and I know that he really wanted to go to Tehran Music School himself. 
But being the first child, he couldn't win my parents. Mm. So and meaning your parents didn't want to they they were worried you know with the situation with the government with like being a musician in iran it's not very easy but they were okay with you uh right now they they well, really now, okay I mean, yeah, but back then no they were hoping that i would drop off or i, I would see. not do it i even remember maybe i shouldn't even say that but i remember the day that we went to audition my mom told my dad don't worry maybe she doesn't even get it <laughs> so i know she's gonna hate it right now that yeah. i'm saying that but I get them now. I didn't understand why they were uh, worried, but now I really understand. Did you have a facility for the? I mean, was it obvious you picked up the cello and was it like, wow, this kid's got it? You know, kind of thing. Um, n- no. Again, my brother really tried to push his idea on me that look, you know, it's cello, you're tall, you why can play. Why the cello? Why not the piano or the I don't know the the guitar or something? Back then uh, in Tehran, there weren't many cellists, maybe three or four. But they were a lot of violin players. Back then being the, the 90s? You're not that old. Late, early, early. I'm actually pretty old, but okay, let's not get into that. <laughs> but um, I, I was born in 1978. So right. this... Uh, that doesn't make yeah. it very old, but okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> he thought I, I would have more um, of an opportunity as a cellist in, t- in Iran. And he was right, because by, by the time I was 14, 15, I was already playing in Tehran Symphony. I was already recording. And uh, uh, and I was pretty good. So you go to you finish Tehran Music School mm-hmm. by the age of eighteen. You go to Armenia for about five years. Is that I'm guessing that's because the level of what you could learn at the conservatory in Armenia was higher, higher. than. And that was again my brother's doing. I wanted to stay in Iran and go to Faculty of Music there, and he's like, "It's not happening. Let's just get her out of here." And again, your brother has such an impact on he you. He is my mentor. It's so funny. Even by this day, whatever I do, I'm always secretly looking for an approval from oh. him. That oh, what is he gonna think about? Like, what what is he? What's his opinion on this? But yeah, he's he's an amazing musician. Five years in Armenia. Five years at the from conservatory there. Ninety-six to two thousand one. So in two thousand and one, mm-hmm. now you're in your early twenties, and you're you're obviously a very good cellist. Uh, um, you returned to Iran. I did. Interesting decision. You could, I mean, I would have thought maybe that's the point where you go to France or Canada or something like I that. I didn't have a choice back then. I already applied to go to Canada by then, but it took longer than what we thought. So okay. I had to go back uh, home and wait until I get my visa, which happened in two years after. You have some interest. I mean, maybe it was a good thing that you went back to Iran in, in the sense that you really got to know at least under this current government, uh, this regime, what mm-hmm. what it would be like to be a musician. Uh, maybe you would always be wondering because you've talked about the fact that being a musician and being female, mm-hmm. at least in the early 2000s, but I'm not sure it's changed that much in Iran mm-hmm. uh, for now, is very, very challenging. Talk to me about what you found when you ba- went back to Iran as this accomplished musician. I don't like those two years that I spent in Iran until I came to Canada. It was very tough because I graduated. I thought that, oh, my God, like I achieved something. Now I can start working here until the next step, whatever that is. But it wasn't the case. I wanted to do a recital every time I hit the wall. Um, and I'm not a singer. For, for singers, you had to give all your lyrics to the Vezat shot. Sure. So they go yeah. through everything and say, if you can sing that. But you, you think as a classical cellist. Well, that's the part I don't get. Because I, I've learned now, you're, if you're a rapper or if you're you know a rock musician or whatever, you're, you know it's a no-go. But I thought... 
classical musician, you know, that, I mean, there's, the, there's symphonies in Iran, there's, mm -hmm. that's at least greenlit, so mm -hmm. I was surprised to hear that Every you Every piece much. that you're going to perform, they have to approve it. And if the, um, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but if the person woke up from a wrong side of a bed that day and he just simply doesn't like you for whatever reason, they're going to say no. I had to change my uh, song list at least three times mm -hmm. to get an approval for one recital that it's supposed to be two nights. First night it happened, second night it, they canceled it without telling me why I cannot go on stage. And, and this wh was... And what was the reason? I never know. I never they knew. Just they just randomly They said, she cannot perform tonight. There's also uh, this incident where you're, there's a concert and you're not allowed to go on stage at some point you're the only female two times this happened to me once was with the Tehran symphony that i was supposed to play i actually remember i was uh, supposed to play sans on cello concerto with them i was very excited i was young i was so happy this that is that with didn't the Tehran happen. symphony with the Tehran symphony as a soloist you're going to be a soloist i was going to so and where yes. is this going to take place i uh, went in talar of rudaki talar vahda the, wow. the big yeah. hall yeah. and we even did all the rehearsals everything happened they just didn't let me go on stage and by then i knew this is not happening and I already applied for immigration to come to Canada so that was my end point right, there right. can I can I just ask mm -hmm. how that the mechanics of this are always so confusing to me mm -hmm. who tells you you can't go I mean is it really on the night of you don't go on the stage or do you find out two days before um, in my case I found out the day of my concert I got a call so presumably tickets are sold or yes everything I they, nobody cared they just canceled it the concert doesn't happen because you were going to solo. Probably. You mean the Tehran Symphony didn't play at all? One piece was my piece, about 20 minutes. They played something else. Concert went oh, on. Oh, the concert I went on, play. just you weren't out. I, I couldn't play. And who that. tells you this? Uh, I got a call from the Wazarat uh, Irshad. And what did Back they say? Then, they say, I'm sorry, you cannot play today. Just like that. Nobody believes it, but these things happen. Yeah. And then I remember my mom told me these are the reasons when you wanted to go to music. I was worried because you got to get out. You can't, you can't stay here. You can't grow. I'm sorry to say that, but male musicians are not very supportive of female. I don't know about now. It's been a long time. I've been out well, of been the country since 2003. So back then they were very, very supportive. They were not supportive. No. If the, your female colleague couldn't go on stage, you wouldn't get any support from the men either that, oh, we are not going to go on a stage either. No, they would do their thing. But I, I don't want to judge. Maybe they didn't have any choice or I don't know. Was it hard to leave Iran? It was very hard. It was very hard. Still is when I think about it. I, it breaks my heart. But but you wouldn't, under these circumstances, go back then? I, um, I don't even think I can go back right now wow. after the, the uh, movement that happened a few sure. months ago and uh, with Gugush, every concert that we played, we, she dedicated to them and everything that I don't even think I can go back. You said something interesting um, to me uh, earlier. You said, I was always a black sheep in Iran, mm -hmm. so when I came to the West, I felt like I kind of fit in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. How do you see yourself as a black sheep? Back home, I was always a black sheep. The things that I did was not the norm or what a girl or, I don't know, female should should do. I was loud. I was too happy, which is not, I guess, something that they have problem with, obviously. And um, playing music, being a professional musician, being on stage, having a lot of male friends. I always had male friends, still do. So 
when I came here, it was like, oh, I'm I'm home. Like in uh, <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you didn't go through a really agonizing assimilation process. No, that no, no. Some people, as immigrants, do. You felt comfortable, and you spoke yes. English. I did speak English. Not I still don't speak so well, but <laughs> I actually learned English with friends. The TV show. <laughs> yeah, the TV show. This is how I learned. Man, I don't know what Iranians <laughs> would do without Pink Floyd and friends. Know, That's exactly. a the the two pop culture moments that everybody <laughs> cites. So when when you come to, to the West, mm-hmm. I mean, you're someone who can solo with the Tehran Symphony. How mm-hmm. are your skills when you come here? Are, are you mm-hmm. one of the best still or is it a more difficult pool? Um, no, in Canada, it wasn't a difficult pool at all. So I got into U of T, Faculty of Music, and did my second master's in cello solo performance. I just showed them my diploma from conservatory in uh, Yerevan and I was in. And I did five minutes performance and they're like, please come in. And I didn't take a lot of courses that the students here had to take because I already took them there. But when I went from Iran to Yerevan, that was a huge disappointing thing for me because the kids started to play since they were three and I had to catch up with them. Mm. That was the toughest uh, period of my time from 96 to 2001, trying to catch up with all the kids over there. What is your regimen as a, as a cellist? Is it like being an athlete? I mean, in terms of, do you practice every day? What I do you? practice every day. I like to practice seven days a week, at least four hours, but sometimes it doesn't happen. Whether you have gigs or not? Whether you, I don't have gigs or not. Right now, I'm committed to two hours no matter what. what but when I can, I do four hours. But mm-hmm. when I can't, I do at least two hours a day. And you have such an interesting trajectory because looking through or seeing the, the things that you've done, um, it's quite a zigzag of a path in terms of the genres you play in, the kind of groups you play in. So you started as a classical musician, Completely. right? Completely. Yes. Completely. Mm-hmm. And then when did you start becoming Dora the Explorer, you know, in, in terms of going into all kinds of different cultures and, mm-hmm. and genres of music as a cellist? Starting 2007, I actually, when I was here, I started listening to rock music or more fusion music. And I, with a friend, we established a band called the Collide Project. And we did a few shows here too. And for the time being, it was pretty successful, but then everybody went their own way. It started from then, which I started uh, playing with electric cello. I tried it once, and then when I moved to uh, L.A., I decided I don't want to do classical music, not at all, but I want to learn how to improvise. I want to learn how to play a different genre of music. Get out of the classical shell. Get out of the classical shell, and having that background helped me a lot because I have the chops. Now I just have to be more creative, which was the hardest part because as a classical performer, all they teach you is not being creative. You have to follow exactly what you see in front of you, and now you have to put those all aside and be a different person. So that was a challenge. You, You are undoing. Undoing everything I learned, basically. De- decades of teaching. Exactly. So that's a that's a challenge. <laughs> it, was, it was, it still is. I'm not saying it right now. I'm great at improvising, but I'm so much better than what I used how to does, be. <laughs> how does somebody, just out of curiosity, how do you? Uh, I've talked about this uh, before on the mm-hmm. on the on the program about how my sister growing up was really accomplished piano player you know she mm-hmm. did all the grades of you know grade 10 etc and and I wasn't I mean I mm-hmm. but 
if you asked one of us to listen to a Beatles song and play it back, I could do that and mm-hmm. I could improvise over the song. She would need the, the sheet music. You know? Yes. Um, so how do you teach yourself to improvise? I mean, do you put on a jazz record and try and play along to it? or I, you... I started with chord charts. I would write myself some chords and then I would try to compose. So I started with composing over the charts and then becoming more comfortable, not pre-write anything. And then just put it in and then try to play some, something on top of it. My friends back in LA helped me so much. The amazing violinist and uh, guitar player, these two, they both took my hand and they push me in the pool that this is what you have to do and then again you I have a background in music so it would be kind of easier to it's just breaking the shell and once I did that it became easier and easier and easier every time is the Massa who plays in a fusion group a mm-hmm. different Massa than the one who plays in a, a symphony yes hundred percent how so? Um, the Massa who plays in fusion group is more free, free spirited, louder. The the other one is more polished, polite kind of a Massa. And which one are you with Gugush? Um, I'm in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Not as polished. I was going to say, <laughs> no, well, you look pretty polished because, up there. Yeah, yeah it's somewhere in the middle because, again, we have charts and we're following charts. There's no improvised whatsoever. Right, right, so, right. but the environment is not as serious as a symphony like it's not like you're going to see LA symphony but same idea one of the things that's amazing about the decision to have as diverse a career as Mm -hmm. you do is I would think that back to your mom you know Mm -hmm. I I want you to you know I don't know about you becoming a musician now that you are a musician Mm -hmm. I'm guessing I mean you tell me if I'm wrong but it's a lot more secure to stay in the classical yes. lane yes. and get a gig. And from mm-hmm. what I understand, you actually got into the San Diego yes, Symphony at one I point, mm-hmm. and then you didn't take the gig. Now, there are a gazillion musicians who'd be listening to us right now who'd be like knocking their head against the wall going, oh my God, I would die for a steady <laughs> gig instead of having to hustle yeah. each week to you know, play at the local bar or get, you know, hope I get a, a cameo gig somewhere or whatever. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that decision. To me, working in a symphony, not no offense to any symphony player. It's amazing. Too late. There are, too late. Yeah. <laughs> it's like working in an office behind a computer. And that's definitely not me. I like meeting new people, new musicians, everything new. So doing the same thing, playing Mozart's uh, 40th symphony that I have done probably over 100 times in my life, I could not handle that anymore. And uh, I didn't take it. And it's not it, about playing it the best. And, you know, I mean, nah. can you not sort of get it up that way? <laughs> like, it's like, I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm going to play this like I've never, most of it's never heard it <laughs> like this before. No. 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 Yeah, I kind of, I, I, I get it. I had the chance uh, when I was younger to be in a, in a, a big musical production. Um, you know, I was a singer and stuff. Like a, a kind of lame is, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh as much as I completely value and mm-hmm. love these people who do, who are so amazing in musical theater, the idea of going up on stage every night and doing the exact same, same thing, thing, putting my foot in the same place, singing everything exactly the same way, yeah, it just didn't feel no. like living uh, to a certain extent. But are there times when you're in between gigs, uh, you know, I mean, um, in between being asked to perform on a record or mm-hmm. or do a performance somewhere or something like that, where you sort of go, man, I, 
what am I doing? Why didn't I? Why didn't I take that San Diego Symphony gig? When I do a bad gig, yes. To to be honest, yes. When you do a gig that you think you don't deserve, and then I'm like, what did? Why did you do that to yourself? But it it lasts only five minutes, and then again, something good happens, and I'm like, no, I made a I made a right decision. What are you? Uh, what are you most proud of in terms of the music that you play? What you do these days, or what you've done in the last few years? Hmm. I'm I'm not very proud of myself. You're like, not proud I'm, of no, yourself. I'm still learning. What I'm would it take still, for you to be proud of yourself? Um I'm still learning every day. I, I still don't see myself as a master cello player. I'm a student and I still will be in a student. I just hope that I get more opportunity to work with more musicians, different genres and learn. Does playing the cello have a best before date or you just keep getting better as you get older? I mean, is there is there a prime years for playing the cello? Like a, well, I mean, your chops, uh, whatever you have, stops at some point and you, you have to maintain that. It's like going to the gym to just... Yeah. But your understanding with your experiences, how many heartbreak, how many, uh, I don't know, all those things, to me, it affects the tone of my cello. So my tone is improving by age. But I have to keep my chops sharp. <laughs> but you can play till you're ninety, right? I mean, it's uh, if you don't have physical problem, yes, uh-huh. you can. Yes. Well, since you've got your new slender <laughs> <laughs> disco uh, cello or whatever that is, you don't have to. It's not, mm. as, not as physically demanding. But, no. Um, but by the way, are there are there cellists who look down upon that? Who sort of oh go, yes. Oh, yeah. I can't are, believe that. that uh, what, what is that's this? That's not a real cello. That's not a real cello. Yeah, mostly older people and symphonies. Who <laughs> <laughs> right, took the symphony job? You, you mentioned the the uprising earlier and and. Uh, uh, the prospects that you can't go back to Iran now—that mm-hmm. makes sense to me. I know that I saw some posts during the uprising. Mm-hmm. You were—you did a a song. You mentioned Hamed Nikpay earlier. You yes. did a song with Hamed and Azam Ali and Ali. a few others. And yes. Baroya, you guys yes. did a version of that. Tell me about that. How that experience has affected you as a girl who grew up in Iran and left because you couldn't be who you wanted to be in Iran. It's tough doing projects like that because it keeps bringing back um, a lot of emotions, a lot of heartbreaks that why can I do what I love in my own country? I have to do it here. That barrier project was Azam Ali and Ramin's uh, idea and they wanted to do something at that time. Everybody was trying to contribute as much as they could and then they put us all together and uh, Imam Akadem was part of it, Arash Albin, I think, he, uh, me, and then and then we did it Hamed. together. Yeah. And Hamed, of course, yes. I mean, in the Toronto show on the weekend, a number of times in between songs, mm-hmm. people were screaming Yes. Mm-hmm. or Matt Bar- Dictator or that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Is that normal? Does that happen? At, uh, uh, since the movement started, yes. Every show? Every show. N- yeah. Anywhere in the world? Anywhere in the world. From Sydney huh? to Melbourne to Hamburg to Berlin. Everywhere. And how do you feel about the people who criticized uh, Gugush and said that, that she should have said more, you guys aren't I doing think they're very unfair. And I'm not saying that because I play in her band. Mm-hmm. has nothing to do with it as a person. She actually cares. You can see that she cares. Yeah. She went to a lot of rallies. In Sydney, she led the protest. The people that started talking unfair things to her, they were uh, promoters, that they wanted to do the concert and she didn't want to go with them. That's why this happened. People, the, no, no, none of the people did that. Two promoters that they started um, being unfair. And you were there, yes. right? Yeah. It was actually a surprise to me, I have mm-hmm. to say, 
uh, the show Saturday night because I had heard this kind of. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I know. Yes. You know, um, it's hard to look at Gugush and her career and say this isn't a person who hasn't served Iran or mm-hmm. Iranians. You know, but but I knew of whatever you want to call it, a small controversy or whatever that she had been through. It surprised me because the show is actually kind of political. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. number of times throughout the night where Maso Amini's picture there, or or sorry, no, or there's mm-hmm. you know um, allusions to or or direct mm-hmm. you know, content that's about the uprising. So, and is that new or is that the the show you guys have basically been doing since um, Hamburg and Berlin? We did she dedicated the whole show to them. She didn't sing any happy songs. Uh, she spoke in between her songs, and it was only about uh, Mahsa Amini, about the victims, about everything. Toronto show, we had a few uh, happy songs yeah. too, but yeah. back before this, no, it was a different... Uh, there was those two or three months, Massa, in the, in the beginning like of the uprising in September, October, November, where there was this attitude uh, that some had that, that there should be no concerts, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that that's some kind of uh, demonstration of respect for mm-hmm. what's going on in Iran. How, how did you feel about that? To me, it's a little unfair to ask artists not to work. Um, I understand that what was going on in Iran hurt all of us, and we are all involved. But do you ask the doctors to stop uh, or surgeon to stop operating? This this is what we do for yeah. a living. Yeah. So, and I think artists are always front line. Whatever happens, we we are uh, we, we canceled a lot of shows. Actually, she didn't sing about five shows. She we didn't do it anymore, and it was hard on everybody because. This is what we do for a living. The hardest part of it, or the part where I think we were wrong, and I mean, we beating the, mm-hmm. the community, anybody who said that there shouldn't be uh, shows, um, is that they can be a venue for catharsis. They can mm-hmm. be the place where people get to experience exactly. and express mm-hmm. what they're feeling. Even Exactly. Even this weekend, yes. when people say, oh, the uprising has died down, to mm. be in a room with over 3,000 other Iranians, all of them chanting Zendigar, yes. it's powerful. It and that, that mm. doesn't happen without the concert happening, right? Mm-hmm. So it, um, yeah. I think it was very positive to keep the concerts going. Now I understand, uh, if especially when you dedicate it to the cause, when people can express themselves or talk about that. But most uh, Iranian artists, they uh, stop their concerts. This is, I, and I know why, because they, we get a lot of hate. Yeah. It's yeah. because of that. It's not by choice. Or they say, oh, you're going mm-hmm. and making money exactly. while there's people, mm-hmm. you know, who are, uh, but you're right. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. nobody told engineers to stop exactly. working or, or, or pharmacists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you see, see, if you just stayed with the pharmacy, exactly. your first love. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get you to uh, play something for us in a moment. Actually, I don't even know. I ju- we haven't plan this are you going to do something classical or are you going to do something from your rock years i mean i don't know No, i think uh, i'm going to play something classical something short i'm going to play a a piece uh uh, from vivaldi sonata Uh Uh, just a little let's do that first so this is masa rasami setting up in the studio picking up her electric cello so this is vivaldi vivaldi all right Cello Sonata, third movement, in E minor. That's my favorite of the uh, <laughs> Vivaldi cello movement. Sorry. Let me, let me give you some clear air before you start. Okay.
live in the Rook studio. That is so, uh, it's beautiful, so evocative. It feels like I'm watching a movie or something. I guess that's, that's what, I'm, what I most think of when I hear cello solo, I guess. It's, uh, it's so beautiful. Thank you so much for doing this. I was going to ask you before you uh, start playing, what I can ask you now is final question. A few moments ago, you said you don't think you're you're great, uh, or you know that you've accomplished a lot, which I would beg to argue with. But um, but you said I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. When will you know, or what is the what is the milestone that you're that you want to reach that? having multiple master degrees and performances <laughs> with symphonies and division have not uh, accomplished for you? That's a tough question. I think I'll always be a student. Well, that's fair. That's fair. Is there a cellist role model that you have? Yes, Michal Maisky. I don't know who that is. He's a uh, Russian-born, moved to uh, U.S., amazing cellist. He just simply makes me cry every time he plays. Have you met him? Yes, I had a master class with him here in Toronto, actually. I was uh, one of the lucky ones that I could play for, with for him. With the short time that he had, he tried to guide me. That, actually, that's the moment that I'm very proud. Which is what? Performing for, for Misha Maisky. And what did he say? He was kind. Hmm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's very kind, very nice. And in 15 minutes, they can really transform you to something else. Right. But he taught me something I, I don't want to get too technical but he talked about colors and tones and um, this is what I've been trying to achieve that have different tones different colors different feelings while you play your angry tone your passionate tone your uh, happy tone your light tone this is what I'm trying to have as many as possible I remember he said it's like uh, those color pencil that yeah. kids are uh, yeah. color that they come in a package of 6 12 24 and as mm. b- b- better and better that you get you can get to the 44 or whatever so I think right now I'm around 12 but let's see <laughs> that's so interesting mm. and does your own emotion Mm-hmm. Uh, your own tone mm-hmm. you wake up on a bad day or something affect the way you play of course of course when you wake up on How a bad day how <laughs> 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 but no not in rehearsals for myself and I want to practice that's what I mean when you go to a rehearsal you have you, to put you everything you, you are, just right. you know um, swallow everything and you pretend that you're a robot you do your own thing but when I practice and my practice time when I have a bad day I, I don't sound good or maybe I don't feel good. That's why I hear it like that. But when I'm angry, I actually play really well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, Masa, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to have you in Same the book studio. Andrew. You're a dear friend, and I'm Thank so uh, grateful that um, uh, to see you. It was really fun watching you up there with Gugush. And, Thank and, you. Uh, congratulations on how well that tour is going. And um, I look forward to, ha- to you coming back in this Rook studio For many sure. times. My pleasure. Thank Merci. you, Jean-Jean. Merci. Thank you. Masa Qasimi, live here in the Rook studio. And this is full time for Rook for today. Remember, for all things Rook related, check out our fancy dancy website, rookmedia.com. Rookmedia.com. All of our episodes, all of our guests, all of our clips, all of our funnies, videos, etc. They're all there. The different programming, contemporary history of Iran, unmarried Persian girls, they're all there rookmedia.com all those episodes 
And you can also support us there by pressing the support us button and becoming a Rook member on Patreon. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Talented Anahita, Super Parisa, Smart Pega, Savvy Rohan, Bearded Omid. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe on any or all platforms if you've not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizunbashi. Bashi.